Welcome to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as always now, by THR's chief TV critic, Daniel Feinberg. Welcome, Dan. What up, Leslie? What up, indeed. Every week, Dan and I are going to go beyond the headlines of the top TV stories and offer a deep dive into the latest news and biggest episodes of the week. Let's get into it. Number one. Let's lead off with something that we talked about last week, almost as a cliffhanger on our first episode, Kevin Hart. When we last recorded, he had just released the first of two videos in which he explained how much he loved the man he was becoming. What happened next may surprise you, but it really shouldn't. Kevin stepped down as host of the Oscars and then apologized for his years-old anti-gay tweets after posting a second rambling video in which he refused to apologize. It's kind of out of order a little bit, but I think how people have responded to it is very mixed. A lot of comedians have come out to support Kevin. A Hollywood Reporter and Morning Consult poll this week found that 26% of Americans who were surveyed thought Hart should not have exited as host. Another 36% said that the Academy was right to ask Hart to apologize. Meanwhile, the Academy, which is as of the time that we're recording this, has yet to comment. They're still searching for a host ahead of the February 24th ceremony. Meanwhile, speculation continues to build that the Oscars could go without a host for the first time since 1989. Dan, you have to review all these award shows, including the Oscars. What do you think? Well, I I hate to give too much insight into how the sausage is made, but we recorded multiple versions of the Kevin Hart segment in last week's podcast. The first in which I I made the mistake of saying that I thought he only had like a 70% chance of actually hosting the show. And then it became clear pretty much within 10 minutes that he really didn't. And even by the time we finished our second version of the podcast, we already knew that he was pretty much on his way It out. went from like 70% to like 10% within like two hours. And even still, by the time we were done recording, we could have said, okay, we're just really and truly waiting for him to bail. And, you know, people are going to point their fingers at whomever they want to. I think the easiest and first people to point your fingers at are ABC and the Academy for not having anticipated that this was going to be a thing that they were going to have to deal with. And then, of course, to Kevin Hart, because it was a conversation that they had to have with him about how he was going to deal with it when it came up, because it was going to come up. So instead, he handled it in the worst way humanly possible. I I mean, genuinely, that first message, the one where he rolled out of bed and said that he loved the man he was becoming, you could not have come up with a worse version other than him just reading the tweets again. So the fact that he eventually did apologize after having dropped out for not apologizing, if he had just apologized in that way in the very first place, he would still be hosting the Oscars today. So it's all too stupid for words. And now ABC and the Academy are in this place where it's not like a host-free telecast is the worst possibility in the world. It's just if you do a host-free telecast at this moment, everyone knows exactly how you ended up there it could pretty much be called the Academy Awards We Couldn't Find a Host telecast. Yeah, the optics are terrible. Yeah, so so they can say whatever. I don't think there's anything wrong with not having a host. They could have just said, this year we're going to do a tribute to movies and we're going to have significant people in Hollywood history come out, wave, take standing ovations, and no host. And people, if they'd done this five months ago, would have gone, okay, sure, why not? No harm, no foul. Maybe you'll get people by saying we're bringing out I don't know, 102-year-old Olivia Diavolin to do an award. Maybe she's only 101. Anyway, I'm glad she's still with us. 
they they've made such a mess of this i i don't really think that hostless is a, a good option for them but <laughs> you know do you think it makes any difference whatsoever in terms of ratings or that there's anything they can do in terms of optics to save this i think their efforts to grow the show right now are just completely out the door i mean i think no matter who they get this controversy will not go away from them whoever they they tap as host will wind up being in the shadow of kevin hart and they're I would imagine have to be some kind of acknowledgement during the show about it or some kind of, in, you know, inside joke about it in terms of some kind of monologue. Look, I mean, with this landscape that we're in right now, who do you think ABC could get as a, as a host? I mean, even looking up and down their roster of talent, I mean, there's there's some problems there, too. The answers that make sense, I assume they've thought of and dismissed for whatever reason. So it seems pretty clear that they've made the determination that Jimmy Kimmel's not coming back this year. And he's made it clear also himself that he doesn't seem to want to do it this year. So if he were to do it this year, again, the optics would be this was clearly a, you know, last resort and no one wants that. Why would you not try to get Constance Wu and Randall Park? That's who Park? I think. Yeah, that's who I think. It get is. the two of them together. You know, Randall Park had a major funny supporting role in a Marvel Disney movie this summer in which he was terrific. Constance Wu was the star of one of the biggest smash hits of the year. Put them together. They're stars of an ABC show. Let them go out there and be funny for five minutes. They can be quick. They don't even need to come out repeatedly. Just do a five-minute monologue, make a few jokes, leave. That would be my suggestion. I, I love that suggestion. I, I don't think that there's anyone else who they could get to do this, especially at this stage in the game. Well, it's so funny because the, the narrative has always been that the Academy didn't want TV people hosting this show. And it was always when Ellen DeGeneres hosted it, it was like, is she enough of a movie person? And then at least Jimmy Kimmel changed that perception. And now we've reached the point where they would really, literally anyone with a Q score they would be happy to have host the show. Ellen Generous has already said she wouldn't do it. Certainly, that would have been good for the show. That would have been lovely for optics. They would have been like, haha, look, we got Ellen. Fine. But she doesn't want to do it. And why would she want to do it under these circumstances? Why would anyone want to do it under these circumstances? I don't know what their choices are. It's not all that deep a roster of, of potential. But, you know, you look at their comedies. I don't know who you would bring in to do it. <laughs> yeah, and at this point, I think the Academy could possibly get some criticism if they they announce a, a straight white guy to replace Kevin, right? I mean, you know, it kind of feels like they're in this damned if they do, damned if they don't situation. I think so. I think, though, that there are, you know, there are certain people who, if they got them, people would get over it. And if they were certain kind of indie people, I, I've definitely, I've seen support online for John Mulaney and Nick Kroll, who have hosted the Indie Spirit Awards a couple times, and, and everyone has loved what they've done. And, and that's one of those things where it doesn't solve the big problems, and it doesn't solve the ratings problem, and it doesn't really solve the optics problem, but people like them. And that would almost be enough. I, I don't think that's what they would want, though. Yeah, I, I don't know what I don't know what the solution is. The solution was Jimmy, Jimmy Kimmel's our default choice. Come out, Jimmy Kimmel. And it feels as if all those bridges have been burnt at least for a year. Sorry, Jimmy. <laughs> no, he, he didn't do an awful job either time. He would be just fine. He just doesn't want the line on his resume to become default Oscar host. So it's fair. Well, speaking of award shows, that takes us to our second topic this week. Number two. 
The nominations are out for the 25th annual SAG Awards with The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Ozark leading the way with four nominations each. They're followed by Barry, Glow, The Handmaid's Tale, and The Kaminsky Method. Netflix was the most nominated outlet with 15, followed by Amazon with eight and HBO with six. In the comedy ensemble, the nominees are Atlanta, Barry, Glow, The Kaminsky Method, and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. While the drama nominees are The Americans, The Handmaid's Tale, Better Call Saul, Ozark, and This Is Us, with the latter the lone broadcast show in both categories. Dan, you have a long love-hate history with the SAG Awards. What are your big takeaways? Wait, do I have a love history with the SAG Awards? No, I mean, in that you love to hate them. I, oh, okay. I should clarify. I, w- I wasn't sure. I missed the part where I was excessively praising of them. No, I, this this to me is pretty simple. I would say these nominations prove that they don't watch television, the actors, I'm saying this as sort of a broad umbrella organization, they don't watch television, they don't have an infrastructure that allows them to reflect in any way what television today looks like, and basically the award show exists for two reasons. Those reasons are one, to presage the Oscars and to be a predictor and another data point on the way to the Oscars, and two, as a certain everybody hug each other and let's give a Lifetime Achievement Award to people. And to me, if this is what they're going to bother doing, maybe they should eliminate the TV side of the awards entirely and do a... I don't know, do two Lifetime Achievement Awards, three, lots of clip packages, whatever. This this group of nominees is ridiculous. And the categories are ridiculous. The fact that they have no way to honor supporting performances is an embarrassment. The fact that they have only five nominees per category is ridiculous. And when you combine those two and you have situations like certain shows getting both a lead and supporting actor in the same category, suddenly, if that happens, that's 40% of the category that's going to one show. And then, in the case of the comedy categories, you have the actor category in which it's two nominees from Kaminsky Method and two from Barry for actor, and two from Mrs. Maisel and two from Grace and Frankie for actress. That's 80% of both categories for two shows. You're just not honoring television if that's what you're doing. You're watching a very small sample. You are in no way reflecting any sort of excellence, any sort of comparative anything. It is just absolute nonsense. And if that's all they're going to do, they really, really shouldn't bother. There is no point in giving awards on the basis that they are giving awards here. So how do you fix this? So how, what can they do to remedy this, you know, so that these categories are not overtaken by the same shows again? Well, the, you know, the simplest two answers are... Institute supporting awards. The movie categories have a supporting actor award. Why not the TV category? And the second answer is mine and Tim Goodman's always favorite thing to say, which is, hey, why not 10 nominees? You know, at at least that allows for some amount of flexibility. But it's already dumb enough that you have these small supporting performances compared to big show leading lead performances. So that's already dumb. And then there are all the random decisions they're making. You know, I don't want to get into insulting people, but if you honestly think that Joseph Fiennes' performance in The Handmaid's Tale is one of the five best pieces of male acting in television drama, you do not watch enough television. It is a supporting performance without which that show could exist easily. It is not in any way elevating that show. So... The fact that he is there, along with John Krasinski, which is also just silly in that category, it's it's just inane. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and and again, I, I suspect to some degree we've already given this more time and consideration than it really is worthy of. But man, do they need to overhaul how they give these awards? <laughs> I wish people could see Dan's face right now. It's it's beet red and these. There's fumes coming off of your forehead, Dan. It's just dumb. And that's that's before you get to sort of the personal taste things like my feeling that if you're not nominating Pose in a drama ensemble category, you don't understand what the phrase ensemble acting means. And so this is a, an award given by an acting group and they don't understand what an ensemble is. Obviously, I, I have a little bit of bias here. I love that show. And I, of course, am not a critic, but Pose is a show that's, that's wound up on numerous top 10 lists. It didn't make yours, as far as I understand. But at the same time, how do they overlook that? I mean, what's happening? In the same way that they also have never given an individual acting nomination to anyone from the Americans, which was nominated for Ensemble for the first time this year, but Matthew Reese and Kerry Russell, zero combined individual nominations. Donald Glover, Atlanta was nominated this year. He was not nominated as an individual. There is a history with FX and SAG Awards. They've, they've had difficulties, largely involving kind of category choices for things like Fargo. And that, that's led to some, I would say, minor estrangement. But even still, it, the, the, this just doesn't look like TV. I, I, look at these, I look at these nominees and this looks like one person who watches six television shows putting their six television shows up for awards, period. Well... That feels like a good point to move on. I think uh, you've given them quite a big beating. And uh, <laughs> the SAG Awards, you know, they actually do have one thing that the Oscars do not, and that's a host. Will & Grace star Megan Mullally will host the January 27th ceremony. What do you think of the choice, real quick? It's fine. Uh, Kristen Bell was the host last year. I think they'd gone hostless previously. Am I correct? I, f I feel like Kristen Bell might have been the first time they've had a host. But Kristen Bell was a good host. Megan Mullally will be just fine. And the, the SAG Awards, when they actually work, they really are just a bunch of actors hugging each other. And it's important to remember that this really is kind of like whatever union you happen to be in for work, getting together for a holiday party. That's that's what this is. It's a union holiday party. So it should be a love fest. It just if you're going to pretend that you're giving out awards, don't make them as dumb as these. <laughs> well, moving on. Our third <laughs> topic this week is a story we'd spend all year talking about, and that's Peak TV. Number three. This week, FX released its annual state of scripted television charts, and there were a few surprises, at least to me. First, we'll get into some math, and we'll make it hopefully quick and painless. The overall number of scripted television series that aired in 2018 hit a new record, 495. That's up only eight from last year's record. You know, last year at this time when I interviewed FX CEO John Landgraf, who is the mastermind behind the term Peak TV and whose network releases all of this data, he projected there would be more than 520 scripted originals this year. So what happened? Taking a closer look at the charts, which are all online at THR, by the way, a couple of things stand out. First, and perhaps most notable, is the fact that the streaming series topped broadcast and basic cable for the first time ever. And that doesn't even include the crush of shows that, that are coming in 2019 from the likes of Apple and Disney Plus and Warner Media. Dan, I mean, this is there's a lot to unpack here. It's a fascinating chart, and I, I love that FX does this and they keep it about as simple as they possibly can and I appreciate that it's a it's a handy dandy little color chart that is as you say available on Hollywood Reporter and you know the the things that aren't surprising are that when they started doing this there were literally only two handfuls of streaming shows and now there are 160 this year and 
that's a lot. Yeah, it's actually what's super interesting about that is it's not only a record for the most number of streaming shows, but it, it's the biggest growth year over year. 117 streaming shows in 2017, 160 this year. It's up 43. It's its biggest increase yet since the streaming services entered really in, in early 2010. But the big takeaway, too, is when you look at, at the big changes, it's really broadcast has dipped seven shows year over year. And basic cable, this is the huge one down 31 shows year over year. So the interesting takeaway for me is, yes, it's another overall record with 495, but despite the the massive gains in streaming, the growth is actually slowing because so many basic cable outlets are slowly but surely retreating from the, the scripted space. Look, it's expensive to do. It's hard to find success, especially in this kind of a landscape. This year, cable networks like CMT and TV Land and NBC Universal's E all exited the scripted space as all of those cutbacks really continue. There's still a lot of TV. <laughs> I don't know how else to write it. I mean, you know, there's no other way to say it. You know, we're constantly writing about series renewals and series pickups and, can't, you know, this one's getting a limited series and, you know, now this guy's getting a spinoff and now Hulu's developing three shows in one franchise and... Dan, you're constantly, constantly watching more episodes of television than any person that I've ever met in my lifetime. Well, and that is, from my point of view, what's most practically illuminating about this is when I keep in mind, for the purposes of my job, how many episodes of a show I typically get before I review. And so for a broadcast network, it most often, especially in the fall, is really only one or two episodes. So that's a minor commitment. And with a cable show, sometimes it's three or four shows, and that's more. And so that drop might be nice. But when it's a streaming show that's set for binging, it tends to be six episodes, 10 episodes, 13 episodes for a review. And if that's where the increase is happening, the number of shows is almost irrelevant compared to the sheer number of hours of television that are both available for people to watch, but also for a critic to have to review. It hurts a little bit. I mean, looking at, at where this growth is coming from, I mean, Netflix is not going to stop spending money on content. Amazon's not going to stop spending. Apple is only going to continue. I mean, I think there are maybe 10 or 15 shows. They picked up another one today, which we'll talk about shortly. But Given that this is where the growth is, how can you possibly watch 10 episodes of a show to write a review? That how is. can you keep that going? <laughs> I don't get well, it. Honestly, part of the answer may at a certain point be finding a way to start ignoring the broadcast shows. And I hate to say it, you know, I, I feel a fierce devotion to the broadcast model, especially in the fall, and to making sure that every scripted broadcast show gets covered and reviewed, because I still think that those are the things that are making the biggest splash. But when I look at the broadcast slates for the fall and even for mid-season, they don't take me or people who do my job into consideration at all. And I don't know how much what I say about their shows matters. They're, they're still blasting the advertisements for their shows with football, basically. Then they're reaching the widest number of people possible. And if the shows are crap, it doesn't matter because some people like crap and some people are just complacent when it comes to watching it. And, you know, I don't even know if it would make a difference at this exact moment if I gave a rave review to a broadcast show. It's been a couple of years since there's been a really great broadcast pilot. 
So I don't know what would happen in today's day and age if critics were to gather around and say, my God, everyone needs to be watching Happy Together. You know, would that have made a difference for Happy Together? I, I have no idea. The fact that Happy Together is not a good show, I don't know that that had anything to do with me or its drop in ratings had anything to do with the fact that I didn't give it a positive review. Just, it doesn't matter. We're... And that's a show, <laughs> look, I, I wrote about that getting picked up to pilot. I wrote about the castings on it. I still can't tell you who's in Happy Together. Oh, it's it's Damon Wayans Jr. still. Oh, there you go. And I that mean, guy who's and that not was a playing, huge talent deal. And that guy who's not playing Harry Styles, because uh, he's definitely not Harry Styles. And I wonder if that would have made a difference, if they'd just been able to embrace the Harry Styles of it all. Anyway, though, what I'm saying is that's pr that might be where, for someone who does what I do, where the decline might be an effort, is, is if there's better stuff elsewhere, pretending as if a critical word on broadcast matters, Maybe it still does, maybe it still doesn't, but maybe at a certain point it becomes physically impossible to care. And I don't think we've reached it yet, but I don't know that the numbers in the online column are going down anywhere anytime soon. Not at all. And the broadcast column actually is down seven year over year, matched the total from 2016. But it's interesting to look at where broadcast is headed, where you've got a lot of these networks are, are starting to kind of hit the pause button on cancellations. I mean, there haven't really been any new fall show cancellations this year outside of Alec Baldwin, which bombed horrifically on ABC. And which wouldn't have counted in a scripted list anyway. Exactly. Most of these networks are really starting to show some patience. And in the case of Fox, they're kind of they're not retreating from from scripted, but they're pulling back because they're focused more on live events like sports with football and wrestling. You know, and that's that's, I think, why you're going to start to continue to see a decrease on the broadcast side, though. You also, on the other hand, have the CW. They branched into Sunday nights this year and the CW has set it up so that they have mid season shows that are just constantly pouring out. They've got a. a slate of scripted shows set for mid-season. Yeah, so. it's all part of a larger push for them to go year-round, but that's also, you know, they're doing it on a different model. They're not spending the same. They own all of their content, and, and their summer scripted is, you know, low-budget acquisitions that they don't expect to really perform. Ah, the outpost. It's interesting how many different models and pieces of messaging there are, because we're still pretending year-round matters. We're still pretending originals are what matter, and yet there goes the drop in scripted programming so i don't know it's in any case I, I always love this list that fx puts out because it makes me feel as if i'm justified in feeling as if i'm underwater 98 percent of the time absolutely and look it sets a narrative for the entire year when it comes to talking about pilot season which is coming up in january among the broadcast networks and as we talk about all these other basic cable companies this is a growing narrative the next network that to drop out we see the writing on the wall. This will only impact how the scales fall next year, you know, when we talk about these numbers. Well, and yet for all of it, there still is more and more TV news every week. I call that a transition, Leslie. <laughs> yes, let's talk about the headlines of the week. Number four. One of the biggest ones this week was news that ABC's Emmy-winning hit Modern Family is inching toward closer toward an 11th season. After Adult Stars, Julie Bowen, Ty Burrell, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, Ed O'Neill, Eric Street, and Sofia Vergara are in talks with producers 20th Century Fox for rich new deals. That's interesting because co-creator Steve Levitan previously said the plan was to end Modern Family with its current 10th season. Of course, that was before Disney, which owns obviously the network that airs it, was near a deal to, to buy Fox, which owns the show. Meaning ABC for the first time could actually own and profit from Modern Family. 
It does behoove Disney to work out new deals with this cast as they look to make a buck from one of the biggest comedies of the past decade. Dan, are you still watching Modern Family? Oh, I still watch Modern Family every week and probably one out of every 10 episodes. I even laugh once. I a mean, ringing not like endorsement. Constantly. But um, it's still one of ABC's top comedies. It is, and there's a lot of affection that people have for that show, and that affection has managed to survive a decline that has been probably six or seven or eight years in the making. And, and I always say this about Modern Family. It's sad to me that I feel as annoyed by it now as I do because that causes me to forget the three or four years at the beginning when it really was a top-notch version of a network comedy, when it was elegantly made, sometimes smartly farcical. The cast has always been a great cast, and, and still, they still are. I mean, when episodes are bad, I feel bad for them, but they're still a great cast. And so sometimes I lose perspective on the fact that in its prime, Modern Family really was a, a tremendous show. And the fact that it is currently not, that's just where it is now. So I understand that some people, they get affection, sticks with it. Also, it's only a half hour a week. So even when I'm not liking an episode, it's done in 22 yeah, minutes. Yeah, seriously, it's 22 minutes. Um, it's good background TV. That's, that's at least how I consume that. Elsewhere, Apple is staging a big alias reunion with Jennifer Garner reteaming with J.J. Abrams for a limited series based on the book My Glory Was I Had Such Friends by Amy Silverstein. Oh, they should definitely keep that title because that is just one that rolls trippingly off the tongue. It's actually J.J.'s second show for Apple and Jennifer Garner's latest TV foray after HBO's Camping, which was a show that you did not like as far as I recall. Tim Goodman hated it. I didn't hate it. I thought it was interestingly confrontationally annoying. <laughs> which is not ever anything that he, that HBO would want to run as a poster blurb. But a they're still welcome. Endorsement. They're still welcome for it for the uh, the DVD box. Uh, interestingly, confrontationally annoying exclamation point, Daniel Feinberg, The Hollywood Reporter. They're welcome to it. Also rolls right off the tongue, Dan. Uh, exactly. Is, is camping officially dead? Is Oh, is it envisioned as a, as a limited series? And I can't imagine that Jennifer Garner is going to be going to run right back there. Um, it's also produced by Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor, both of whom have creatively split as partners. So I, I think there's a lot of obstacles to to that show coming back. It's it's too bad. It was not a it was really not a great vehicle for Jennifer Garner and I continue to believe that she is absolutely and totally a TV star and probably getting together with JJ Abrams who worked with her both in Alias but also in Felicity. I think he knows and I think he would be more likely to work to her strengths, whereas part of what the goal was of camping was playing opposite her strengths. I think that really was what they were going for is, can we make this person who everybody loves so annoying that they wonder why they loved her? I, I think that really was part of what they were going for. That's just a strange thing to want to go for. <laughs> um, in other news, CBS All Access, the streaming platform behind The Good Fight and Star Trek Discovery had its first cancellation. Mystery thriller, $1. Dan, I could not tell you. I wrote that cancellation and I still don't remember who was in it. I believe because it was kind of a, a weekly anthology show tracing the path of $1 from person to person, many people were in it. Uh, Tim reviewed that one. I've reviewed, I think, every other CBS All Access show. So this happens to be one that, that I actually did not watch. And given that I have never in casual conversation with a human being heard anybody mention one dollar, 
or honestly Strange Angel or a couple of the other CBS All Access shows that aren't the good fight in Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, I've been not surprising. <laughs> yeah, and this is still a platform that's that's figuring out what it is. I mean, look, they've greenlit a couple other Star Trek shows as they really lean into that franchise. They've got Twilight Zone coming in 2019. I don't know. It feels a little niche. They they have to figure out what it is, and all they and you know they know if Star Trek Discovery is a big enough success to float a network for five years, ten years, two years. They know. I I don't know, but at this point, it feels as if that's happening. Even though The Good Fight is a really really good show, and People should watch it and talk about it. But CBS and CBS All Access have no idea what to do with the good fight. It, you know, it should be, it should be an awards player for them, and it isn't. And yeah, is that just because not enough people watch this platform? I think it's part of it. I think also they don't know what the show is. I, I think the show, and I've said this other places. I think the show is a comedy, and I don't think that CBS All Access appreciates that. I, I think it is a, a wacky, dark political comedy about life in the age of Trump. And I think that if you marketed the show as a comedy, Christine Baranski would be an Emmy nominee because she's so good. And the whole cast is so good. And when the show hums, it's fantastic. If The Good Fight were on CBS, it would be the best drama on broadcast television right now. Wow. It is not. No. You have to pay to watch that. Indeed. Yeah. In other news of the week, uh, the upcoming Star Wars live-action series coming to Disney Plus revealed the rest of its cast. Giancarlo Esposito, Carl Weathers of Rocky fame, join the, the Mandalorian that includes Pedro Pascal, Gina Serrano, and Nick Nolte, and Werner Herzog. No character details are available for the drama from Jon Favreau, but it's expected to bow in 2019. Dan, is Star Wars a new live-action, high-profile, high-end, big-budget show from Jon Favreau, something that's going to get you to buy Disney Plus? Uh, or at least to hope that they give me access to it, yes. Uh, and, and this cast is, is so weird and random, it, it sounds a little bit like you expect to get to the end and someone to just yell the aristocrats. The idea of somehow attempting to do a Star Wars show with Nick Nolte and Werner Herzog is hilarious to me. And all of the people in this show are eclectic and odd. And so you can absolutely count me in. And John Favreau is often very good and talented. I, he's not infallible. I'm, I'm not going to say that he means that I'm 100% on board, but that cast can get me curious. Yeah, absolutely. In peak TV title news, this is perhaps one of my favorite uh, little oddball stories of the week. Freeform ordered a comedy from Please Like Me creator Josh Thomas that's called Everything Is Gonna Be Okay. Meanwhile, literally half an hour later, Netflix picked up a series from the duo behind The End of the Bleeping World called I Am Not Okay With This. It's a new category we're going to launch here called Peak TV Title Clusterfuck. <laughs> After talking about all the, the TV that we have to watch, almost 500 shows airing this year, Having two shows with similar titles like this that are vastly different, I mean, it's just getting worse, right? This title confusion? Well, I never will remember those two titles. There, there's no way on earth I'm ever going to connect those titles, so I will find a way to remember which show involving the word OK is on Netflix and which one is on Freeform. But even still, there's a better chance that I'm going to remember either of those two titles than My Glory Was I Had Such Friends. There you go. Man, Apple memo yeah. to Apple, Gotta but it, hap it happens that because I love the end of the bleeping world, I can be absolutely into that. And also, Josh Thomas is incredibly talented. So, a bad title never thwarts my ability to be interested in a show. But as Kevin Beagle will tell you frequently on Twitter, 
a bad title like, say, for example, Cougar Town apparently will hurt people's interests in a show. Well, that's going to take us straight to our final topic of the week, our Critics Corner. Number five. Most originals are off for the holidays, but the remaining new releases for the year include the series finale of NBC's Timeless. You've got the new season of your favorite Netflix show, Fuller House. Uh, season two of Hulu's Marvel drama Runaways and Amazon's Vanity Fair. What's coming up that you recommend? Well, here's the thing. And I feel entitled to do this because two years ago for the magazine, I could not have ESPN's OJ Made in America as my number one show in the magazine because several of our film critics were taking it as a movie because it had played in theaters and at film festivals. And last year, a bunch of film critics tried making arguments that Showtime's Twin Peaks was really and truly an 18-hour film. For the record, O.J. Made in America was financed with an episodic structure by a cable network. It was a TV show. And Twin Peaks was financed with an episodic structure by a cable network. It was a TV show. But darn it, you know what you should be watching on TV in the next week or two? You should be watching Alfonso Cuarón's Roma. That is the best thing that is on TV right now, and I don't care if it's also the best movie of the year because it is a Netflix project and it will be premiering on Netflix this week, I believe, and it is remarkable. If you live in a place where it's available in a movie theater, you should go see it in a movie theater. It is widescreen brilliance with the most complicated and lovely sound design I have heard in a movie particularly in a non-sci-fi fantasy movie, in years. If you can see in the big screen, you should. But if you can't, find a way to sit down in a room that is quiet, turn off the lights, press play, and put your remote on the other side of the room and just let Roma play out on your TV. Whether it's a TV show, which I know it's not, or a movie, it is the best thing that you can watch on TV this holiday season. Well, that feels like a good note to end things on. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your various podcast platforms. Dan and I will be back next week with a special year in review episode. It's going to be epic, our year in review episode. You definitely want to tune in for that. Until then, Leslie. Thanks for listening. <laughs>